0: And the fact that this was a white supremacist insurrection, the fact that this was a riot started, yes, in the name of Donald Trump, but for white supremacy, is a point that should have been made repeatedly through the trial. And it wasn't made at all, except for that one almost glancing reference by Plaskett.
1: Hi from the griot. I'm your co host, Dr. Christina Greer. And today we have a guest co host. Hi, I'm Ellie Mistal,
0: the justice correspondent for The Nation. And you are listening to What's In It for Us.
1: you hear oh So, the impeachment is finally done. I'm so glad to have, like, a lawyer's lawyer here with us to discuss. I don't know what's going on with the future of the GOP, and I honestly don't know what's going on with the future of this democracy. And Representative Plaskett, shout out to the United States Virgin Islands, was on full display. Not just the gear, but the brains and everything else. The St. Louis jail and prison update, I want to talk to you about that, and sort of the uprising that we're seeing, and I'm curious as to whether or not it will spread to other prisons and jails across the country. And then lastly, indoor dining across America. I think people are just over this pandemic and it's like, you know what? I'm just going to go out and kill my loved ones. <laughs> what are you think <laughs>
0: There's so much going on. Just before we started this recording, I saw that Amy Cooper, the Central Park Karen, who called in the false police report against the Bird Watcher. Yeah, her charges got dropped, but she totally attended some racial bias classes. So it's fine. And so it's always nice when white people get restorative justice. I hope sometime in the next 400 years that comes for our people, too. That'd be nice.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> well we've been waiting. And so I guess we'll have to continue to wait. And we'll always ask what's in it for us. Okay, Ellie, so happy Black History Month. I don't feel like I've said that to
0: you. No, it's the first time we've been on in February.
1: Yeah, so happy Black History Month. I've been doing this Black History Month challenge, okay? I saw it online and it's hashtag because of them we can. I don't know who put it together, but it's essentially 28 different minor and sometimes major things that you can do to sort of have a more robust Black History Month. I'm loving it. I'm killing the challenge. You know, I'm super competitive. So the first thing on the challenge is from a Black child, check, right? So I figured you can do that pretty easily easily just run upstairs real fast. But like, hey, I think you're great. <laughs> the second one is donate to an HBCU of your choice. So I donated to my mom's alma mater, Florida Memorial, which is in Miami, because I just feel like there are over 100 HBCUs and so many people only think of Morehouse, Spellman, Howard and Hampton. What are your thoughts?
0: I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'll tell you who put it together. It's somebody from my old neighborhood who was just like, Ellie, you ain't black enough. <laughs> Most of this stuff, it didn't even occur to me to do some of these things. Like what? Share a photo of an ancestor. Yes. That would be nice. I don't think that my eight and five-year-old, I don't think they have ever seen a photo of my grandmother who was a single schoolhouse teacher in segregated Mississippi in the early 1900s. I don't think they've even ever seen her. That would be cool. Something that I haven't thought of.
1: I shared a picture of my great-grandfather who was born in 1886. and sent it to a friend of mine and he ended up becoming a theologian and he went to Roger Williams College. So that's the photo that I've shared. And his wife also went to college. She went to Tennessee State. Dr.
0: Greer, let me ask you this question because this list is inspiring a certain thought in my mind. Partially, it's I'm trying to justify why I haven't done any of this.
1: And for the audience out there, before Ellie asks a question, some of these things are like find a person in Black history that you share a birthday with, watch They've Gotta Have Us documentary, take a virtual tour of the Museum of African American History and Culture, buy and read a book by a Black author, research Barbara Jordan, easy for me. I'm writing a book about her. Open up a bank account with a Black owned bank. So those are some of the things that are either easy that you can do right at your computer, or some of them are going to take a little bit more time. Okay, what were you going to say? I
0: mean, open a bank account with a Black owned bank. I mean, first you have to find a black owned bank, which it's hard to do that through your city app on your phone. I'm going
1: to go with Carver Bank in Brooklyn. That's amazing. But
0: here's my question. I think one of the reasons why it didn't occur to me to do some of this stuff or most of this stuff is that, and I don't know when this flipped for me, but at some point, certainly in my adult life, I started treating Black History Month as the time that I was supposed to put in the most effort, be willing to put in the most effort, educating white people about black history. And it occurs to me looking at this list that it wasn't always like that, that at some point when I was smaller, not as small as my kids, like when I was a younger man, I understood Black History Month as an opportunity for me to educate myself more about Black history that was not part of my traditional, classical, expensive private school education. That Black History Month was a a time for me to update my syllabus, if you will.
1: And learn more about Frederick Douglass and the Journal of Truth and Martin Luther King Rosa Parks. It's like, beyond those four, maybe we should know a much more diasporic conversation. We should be talking about the Haitian Revolution. We should be talking about about African independence movements. We can be talking about all the brilliant black people that have invented things. And I would say the major figures in black history, but also the major figures who are in our own families, like your grandmother, who's a teacher,
0: right? So did it ever flip for you? Because I feel like part of the answer is that while I do that stuff all year, at some point in my adulthood, I became just generally less interested in white history and refocused my entire syllabus on not just black history, but African diaspora history. But still, there's that self-educating, versus white people educating tension.
1: And we went to the fancy private schools and so I'm of two minds. One is that in graduate school and then all the way up to basically pre-COVID, I used to have a huge Black History Month party where there was a quiz, there were teams, it was really competitive, people got prizes in the form of books and medals, and you basically got bragging rights at all of my other parties for a full year until the next year. So imagine putting together a whole bunch of super smart Black academics in one room and giving them a diasporic questions. Let's just say it was a thing. But for me also, So there was a shift, I guess, in my upbringing because we went to these schools that are known to be so fantastic, but we didn't learn about anything, honestly, as far as Black stuff beyond Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. And so my larger thought is shame on the entire American educational system, public, private, and parochial, because Black history is American history. So I shouldn't be upset that I don't know all these things, but white people should feel livid that they don't know these things because these are their people in their country too. So Every single American should feel like the month of February is a time to learn about something that they should have been known and making those diasporic connections but really seeing triumphs of Black Americans in this country. So much of our narrative is like, "Oh, we are enslaved. It's like, we were enslaved from that enslavement. Look at this dynamic culture we've created that everyone across the world tries to emulate in every single capacity. Still we rise. That to me is more of like a shame on American educational systems that don't make Black history part of American history. Because if you don't black like history, then you don't know about your country and you should feel like you've been done a disservice no matter what
0: comes. And you don't know why certain things are here. That's been my adult focus. Yes, we were enslaved and look at the culture we built. I'd say, yes, we were enslaved and look at all that we built for you. Yes. Like look at all the stuff that you have, the White House, that you would not have, but for our free labor and effort. Don't you think that at some point somebody should pay for that, by the way? But also exactly as you're saying, how so much of what we think of as the fabric of America was built and contributed to by Black Americans. I always like to point out that the first Dutch settlers, the first people that showed up in the great state of what we now call New York, brought with them 17 African slaves. Genetically, there are some Black people still up in this business who can trace their roots all the way back to the Dutch.
1: New Amsterdam. What's so interesting is on this Black History Month Challenge, one of the checklist pieces is find an everyday item created by a Black inventor. And I didn't want to do the traffic light, which you learn sometimes in middle school. Mine was by Mary Beatrice Davidson, who invented maxi pads. And I was like, tell that to millions of women across the world. As we're celebrating the Black woman who has helped usher in the COVID vaccine, we can think about telecommunications and space, touch-tone telephone, portable fax, caller ID, call waiting, fiber optic, cable technology, and this is like Dr. Shirley Jackson, the ironing board by Sarah Boone in 1892. Now, for those of the listeners out there who know me, know that I don't iron. I am an embarrassment to my Southern roots and my poor (laughs) grandmother rolls over in her grave every day when I leave this house wrinkled and disheveled. I don't believe in ironing. I think that life is too short to iron. But the ironing board was still invented by a Black woman. Home security system. Mary Van Britten Brown, 1966. The list goes on and on. The three-way traffic light that I mentioned. Garrett Morgan, 1923. So we have so many everyday items and objects, technological and other, that are invented by Black people. And this erasure of history, I think, goes back to a larger point that I always see you making on television about how can we be seen? We can't kneel quietly on the sidelines. We can't protest in the streets. At a certain point in time, you just have to admit that you don't want to see us, you don't want to acknowledge us, and you don't want to acknowledge all the contributions that we continue to
0: make. One of the ways that I have experienced Black History Month more recently is as a father, and keeping a tab, if you will, on the white education that my kids are getting, and then using this month as really an opportunity or a starting point to have difficult conversations. And when I say difficult conversations, I do not mean that like a white woman would mean that. I mean like the difficult conversation of explaining to my kid, my eldest kid as he gets older, what racism Is and what slavery is, and what these things are that because of the way that I've sheltered him, he has barely experienced, or at least to the extent that he experienced that he doesn't know what to call it yet, to then try to put a name and a face and a word to the things that he's experiencing and to the things that I know that he is going to experience in the future. And the last two or three Black History Months have been a really good starting point, kickoff point, beginning point. Basically, every year it's like, okay, now we're going to up the conversation to this. Now we're going to up the conversation to this. Okay. Now you're eight years old. This is about the first time that I've started to try to explain the violence. Mm. Partially it's because of what just happened at the Capitol. Because seven-year-old my kid just understood racism as people being mean to each other. And boy, you shouldn't be mean. But now it's people hurting each other.
1: In a deliberate way.
0: It's almost like a yearly bell ring of like, okay, you know, when he's 10, it's going to be time to
1: watch Roots. But the thing is, even something as simple as I do these cartoons for Ted Ed, and so I've done one on Ida B. Wells, one on James Ball, one on Bayard Rustin. But like even Ida B. Wells, she's an amazing journalist, but she's investigating lynchings. So to talk about Ida B. Wells Barnett, you also have to introduce your son to, okay, so there's this thing called lynching. Or, you know, my aunt owns the Great Blacks and Wax Museum in Baltimore. but like the Madame Tussauds for Black people. To enter the museum, you go through a slave ship. Before we even get to talking about all the great Black figures in American history and Baltimore history, we actually have to go through the Middle Passage to understand where we are. And I just wrote a piece about the forgotten 100 years and how we oftentimes skip from like 1865 to 1965. It's like, this Civil War ended, and the Civil Rights Movement. It's like um that. A lot of stuff went down in that Reconstruction Jim Crow area, and we need to talk about it. You know, GIs being lynched in their uniforms coming back from the war. So I think that there's this way that you're introducing your son, almost like you go swimming. You slowly but surely make it more difficult. That is also, I think, an
0: extreme privilege that has been enhanced in a weird way by COVID, by the lockdown. I have a real information control over what he is exposed to what they both are exposed to that I love, that I cherish, that I want to keep as for as long as possible. Because especially for me, so many of my early racial awakenings were imposed upon me. Like, you know, something happened out in the street, something happened out in the classroom, and then I came home confused and my parents had to explain to me what happened as opposed to top down. Tomorrow you might see this, next week you might see that. It's an informational control thing, and COVID has really done a great job but letting me have for my oldest one an extra year of control than I wouldn't have otherwise had.
1: What's also really beautiful, and I'm so curious once we're on the other side of this, to talk to Black parents about the sense of empowerment that you're instilling in your children because they are actually with you in this educational process. But also for those of you who are interested in supporting Black-owned banks, there's Citizens Trust Bank that's headquartered in Georgia. There's GN Bank in Illinois. There's Liberty Bank and Trust Company in Louisiana. There's Carver Federal Savings Bank, which I'm going to open up an account before February 28th. There's Optus Bank in South Carolina. So there are lots of ways that you can actually get the challenge. So you can go on What's In It For Us podcast. We'll post it on on our Instagram page, the hashtag was because of them we can, but it literally was just posted post that said Black History Month challenge. So as always, we have to continue to think about how we can be better during Black History Month, but also think about what's in it for us. Okay, Ellie. So impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. You are one of my favorite lawyers of all time. So impeachment is done. Obviously, Republicans could not find a backbone out of nowhere. There were 67 votes that were needed to find the former president guilty. The final vote was 57 to 43. The context of the second impeachment was Donald Trump and his role in inciting a deadly January 6th riot on the U.S. Capitol, where we saw Confederate flags and swastikas and VCs everywhere. The Republicans who impeached Trump, some were from the South. Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Collins and Murkowski of Maine and Alaska. They had been willing to vote with Democrats here and there, but Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, and Mitt Romney. Toomey is not going to run for re-election. So what do you make of it? I know you were following it. You were writing about it quite a bit. Donald Trump goes back <laughs> into the history books. He's the only president to be impeached twice. I did not think that he was going to be found guilty at all. I did not think that the Republicans in all of their famous speeches on the Senate floor would ever have the courage to stand up to him or stand up for the American people and actually vote to convict him. Were you surprised at all during the impeachment hearings or was this just something you were expecting? I was
0: obviously expecting him to be acquitted because that's what Republicans do. Republicans cannot be changed. Their minds cannot be moved. They cannot be convinced. The only thing they can be done with them is to expose them. Strategically, I might have done different things to expose them than what was done. But at the end of the day-
1: Like what? Because you are literally one of my favorite lawyers. What would you have done if you were in charge of the impeachment hearing? Because everyone says that the second the second impeachment is so much more organized and more thorough than the
0: first. I thought the first one was pretty good too. I thought the problem with the first one is that we should have had witnesses. There was the need to have witnesses. Republicans refused to allow witnesses to be called. And that was a problem with the first impeachment. The second one, we actually controlled the chamber and we could have had witnesses and they in fact voted to have witnesses and we still didn't call witnesses, which I don't fully understand why. Now I get some of the arguments that the house managers and the Democrats have belatedly made about not calling witnesses. No more witnesses would have changed Republicans' minds. Again, I don't live in the headspace of trying to change Lindsey Graham's mind. If I only did things based on what Republicans thought I should or shouldn't do, I wouldn't have a law degree. I'd be shining shoes at Grand Central if I had to listen what Lindsey Graham would want me to do. I don't care what they wanted. I understand the arguments like, oh, well, some of the witnesses would have fought and you'd have to have a subpoena process and that would have taken too long. Fine, then don't call those witnesses. Call the witnesses who are there and willing to testify, again, not to convince Republicans, but to Expose their fealty to Trump and their evilness in this moment as much as possible. One of the moments for the trial for me was after it was over, they had that unanimous vote to give Eugene Goodman, the hero, the congressional gold medal or whatever. Why not put him on the stand? Right. It's great to give him a medal. I want him to tell us what he saw that day, what he heard that day, what they called him that day. Let's make it real obvious what happened. I would have preferred that as opposed to what we did. But what we did, it was a really good presentation it was a really solid legal argument. There's nuance here. I'm not slamming the House managers. I think that what they did was great. I would have strategically done it a little bit differently to make a slightly different point than they were trying to make. Only Stacey Plasquette made the argument that what the Republicans were doing was also racist.
1: Mm-hmm. Talk about that, because hearing her explicitly say like, wow, this is interesting in all of your videos, it's Black women on Black women. She brought it out, which brings me to the question of, is this why descriptive representation is so important? Because we have to leave it to a Black woman to call out the shenanigans of these Republicans?
0: It's not that we have to leave it to a Black woman to call them out. All the other House managers knew it, too. They were just afraid of Republicans because, again, there's this problem of trying to think about it in terms of what will convince Republicans. So if your entire point of your life is to convince Richard Burr, then it probably doesn't help you to be like, oh, by the way, your party is racist. Strategically, I get that. But again, if your point is not to convince Republicans, if you're not worried at least about convincing Republicans, then the fact that this was a white supremacist insurrection, the fact that this was a riot started, yes, in the name of Donald Trump, but for white supremacy is a point that should have been made repeatedly through the trial. And it wasn't made at all, except for that one almost glancing reference by Plaskett. And then if you look at what happened on right wing Twitter, what did they do there? As soon as she mentioned that all of the Republican bad guys in that video were black people, brown people, or women, right wing Twitter just lit up with, oh, she's playing in race card. That's what they do. So again, if you're going to live in a world, if you're going to live in the paper bag where their reactions matter, you see why the rest of the House managers didn't go there. But if you live in this other world that I want to live in, where we don't care about their reactions, then this was a point, this was a threat that should have been pulled much harder and much more consistently throughout
1: the trial. Well, I think it's really important also that she's a delegate. In regular congressional business, she's not even a voting member, which brings up really interesting conversations about D.C. and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. But I think for me, Ellie, watching representative class- at make this case in such a cogent way, it's undeniable. What it really helped hammer home for me is that white people fundamentally do not understand white people. Even good meaning white people, the people who are on the Democratic side, the people who are Representative Plaskett's colleagues, the reason why they didn't back her up, the reason why they didn't say, you know what, I'm actually going to start this conversation. She can pick it up and say we're sick and tired of being sick and tired later on if she wants to. But like, I'm going to say it as a white person. I'm going to say it. I still don't think that white people fundamentally understand the capacity of what white people are willing to do. We've been in those court. When I say we, the ancestral black people have been in those court cases where all the evidence says this white man lynched this black Man, or this white man killed this child or black child or this white man raped this black woman. And you can get a jury of 12 white people who are like, he's good. Sorry for your inconvenience that you even had to go through court. If you even make it to court. We've had so many generations of the justice system just completely ignoring us, insulting us, degrading us. And I don't think that a lot of good, mean white people really understand what white people are capable of in order to keep power.
0: Your point could not have been made more clear than by white people and their reaction action on January 6th itself because I was watching TV that whole day and let me tell you white people were surprised. shocked. White people were surprised to see themselves acting like fools. Black people weren't. This is what they do. I was surprised the cops were so nice to them for a second. I had to catch my breath and be like oh yeah there's not gonna be a massacre. Oh yeah there's not gonna be any shootings because this is a white mob and so of course the cops aren't going to stop them the way they would stop. Look you could not find a hundred black people to rush the Capitol like that. Oh, please.
1: They would have bombed the Capitol, Ellie.
0: Because we would have all known it was a suicide mission.
1: They would have bombed the Capitol. They would have been like, you know what? We'll rebuild it. We just don't even want to waste bullets. We're just going to bomb the whole Capitol. Right? But of course,
0: they held their fire when it was 800 white people storing
1: them. Well, because they had families, Ellie. That's what one of the police officers said. He's like, I was begging them to spare my life because I figured I should to tell them I had a family and was hoping that they would see my humanity. This is a white police officer as he's being beaten by other white people. You and I have been to these fancy schools. We know how white boys behave when they win a hockey game or a basketball game or a soccer game and when they lose. It's the same behavior. I grew up in Philly. You got to grease uh, the poles, <laughs> the electricity poles. They're going to climb the poles and literally throw batteries around the city because they're <laughs> excited or because they're sad. We're not too sure. This behavior that we see time and time again, it reminds me as we transition to sort of thinking about this constant dialogue that you mentioned on January 6th, this false equivalency. It's like, well, we saw this every the summer with the Black History Month riots. I was like, well, first of all, those were protests. What we saw on January 6th was an insurrection. It was a riot. It was all the negative things that you, words and adjectives that you should be using. What we saw over the summer, the anger and the angst, I would call an uprising. It's people who can't take it anymore. It's people who are just like, I'm so tired of police coming into my community and abusing us and shaking us down and all those stories that are just starting to come out. And so in thinking about St. Louis, and this uprising that we're seeing, they're like, oh, the riots in the jails. Are you making this parallel connection between people who are incarcerated? They couldn't be in the streets this summer, but they are feeling that same level of uprising, especially during COVID, when they've become the forgotten people in this country.
0: I think two things. I think one, actually, shockingly to me, you're being too nice.
1: <laughs> no one's ever said I've been too nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the difference is it's not even close. There is no Black Lives Matter protest on record that has the body count that they racked up on January 6th. You- cannot be a part of a black protest, riot or insurrection and kill a cop. You cannot do that because they will shoot you and arrest all y'all. That's just not happening number one. Number two, yes we can talk about the moral difference between uprising against police brutality versus uprising to steal an election. We can talk about the moral difference between breaking the windows in a target versus defiling the U.S. Capitol. There's a moral difference as well but then there's also the issue of what are the pressures and stresses the people are under. We look at the white terrorism riot, the stress and pressure those people are under is the specter of not having white power. That's what's stressing them out. That's what's making them scream. It's that thought that, oh my God, remember eight years we had to listen to a black man? Oh my God, what if that happens again? Well, in the
1: form of a black woman who's chosen not to have children, she's married to a Jewish man, she's half Indian, both of her parents are immigrants. They Minds being exploded. And I've always said it wasn't always about Obama. It was what Obama exposed to them about Black excellence. It's one thing to be like, oh, I know this one kid, Ellie, but that's just Ellie. It's another thing to see a widespread. You got Eric Holder. You got Valerie Jarrett. You had AG's, You had just a whole cadre of Black people. It's like, yeah, well, you were sitting there Archie Bunker style, licking your wounds because now there's competition. Other people are actually reading and working and now you're salty. I don't know what to tell you. You had a 400 deer head start. You didn't do anything with it now it's my fault because I've got ovaries and black skin? Whose fault
0: is that? Not mine. Obama's biggest sin for white people is that he was better. He was good at it. That's what really got under their skin. But when you compare that to what happened in St. Louis and what's been happening to prisoners throughout this pandemic, which is a human rights violation. Prisoners in this country generally, but especially during the pandemic, have been exposed to human rights violations. They are being hoarded together in a way that literally get them sick and some of them will die. Because of interruptions of services, they've been without food at various points. They've been without heat at various points. These are things that would intermittently happen without the pandemic. The pandemic has increased all of these stresses on the system. And in St. Louis, they staged a prison riot off of that. They staged an actual prison riot off of their unsafe, unsanitary, and violative conditions. I don't think that we need to parse the morality of a prison riot. I think we need to question question why we ever allow people to be put in that situation. Because if it was a predominantly white prison, it wouldn't happen. The prison in St. Louis is not the prison that Felicity Huffman has got sent to. That's not the prison that Michael Cohen is currently cooling his heels in. This is a form of punishment.
1: And punishment for the poor. Let's also be clear.
0: We generally reserve for black and brown people and poor people. That's who gets this.
1: Here's the crazy thing. I talked about it with my students and a student gave the summary. Roughly 100 inmates staged this, I call it a rebellion and uprising, but staged this riot. The corrections officers were like, well, we don't know why. They're just acting out. And it's like, no, they were very clear. It's for demands, largely COVID-based. They felt like they weren't getting adequate food and shelter when you described it. And the public safety director was like, oh, they're just angry and defiant and violent people already. But we know that the testing isn't consistent. We know that if you're cooking the books on nursing homes, you're damn sure cooking the books on prison populations, the number of COVID positive cases, and sadly, the number of deaths. So as we wait to find out, I don't think that we'll ever really know the depths to which prisoners have had to live in a COVID era. And what really worries me too, is because we know that all the psychological literature says that when prisoners are able to have visits from friends and family, it decreases anxiety, better health outcomes, fewer fights. We're still human beings. You may or may not have done something quote unquote bad in society, but you still need to be treated like a human being. And we now know because of COVID, they can't even see their loved ones. So people on the other side are passing away. They can't make arrangements to go to funerals. They couldn't see them one last time. So it's just like this rippling effect that makes me so furious because it's the punishment of poverty in many ways. Listen, you and I both know if you want to find drugs, you go to a dorm of a private school. <laughs> like if you're really that pressed about the war on drugs, go to Columbia and NYU if you live in New York. Go to Berkeley and UCLA if you live in LA. Go to University of Chicago. We can list literally all the schools in the top 100. And you can get all the drugs you want. You don't even have to go to universities. You can just go to high schools and get <laughs> drugs. It's not even about this idea of really caring about the policy space that you're locking up all these young black and brown men and now women. And then you're treating them in COVID worse than we could even imagine people in other countries treating their own citizens. And there's no concept that the UN is like, y'all need to get it together. How can we go around the world wagging our finger about human rights violations when you and I can list 30 off the top of our heads right now. We
0: can't. This is something that I had to learn later in life. My wife happens to be from Zimbabwe. And when we met in college, I was quite surprised to find out that America was not greeted on the world stage as (laughs) defenders of peace, justice, and democracy that I had always been told we were. I was surprised that that was not her impression of my country when we met. Uh, (laughs) Later in life, I came to this realization. And one of the reasons, one of the things that you find out once you travel outside of this country, you don't even have have to go all the way to Africa. You could just take two steps inside France and you'll figure this out. The American hypocrisy really stings as you get further and further away from Washington, D.C.
1: And especially when you go to other Black nations.
0: And part of it is that other countries see how we treat our most vulnerable, how we treat our most despised. They see what we do. And they're like, how dare you? How dare you come into my country and tell me how to run my warlord? Where do you get the gall? no pun intended for France, to do that. We can't go around preaching peace and justice and harmony around the world when this is what we do to our own people. But again, it goes back to structural white supremacy because at the end of the day, America does not let this happen to predominantly white groups. We just don't let it happen. When it does happen, we see it, we're horrified, there is immediate reform, and there's a fix. A good way of looking at it, and you brought it up, I think, very smartly, after this is over, there will be a reckoning with how we've handled nursing homes. People, some of whom might be governors of important states, (laughs) who seem to have mishandled nursing homes, will be held to account because nobody likes it to learn that white grandma was mistreated at the end of her life. Like Nobody will accept that. But not a damn thing is going to be done about our prison system. We will never even know how many people die in our prisons due to COVID.
1: Because if you're cooking the books on nursing homes, and we know that there have been over 580,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 within correct. Facilities. 2,600 deaths among inmates and correctional staff, which I don't believe that number, not one bit. But basically, it's one in five inmates who have or have had the virus. And then the largest coronavirus outbreaks, they're saying in the New York Times, have occurred in prisons like San Quentin. So there are a lot of other prisons that they're not even really looking at. So they're trying to make this shift away from things in nursing homes aren't that bad, but actually things in prisons aren't that bad either, which we know, especially when we're dealing with poor people, especially when we're dealing with Black and Latinx people, this country just doesn't really care. And I I think your undergirding foundation of a lot of your analysis is white nationalistic power structure that must maintain in place. And I think that that perfectly segues to our last segment, which is this idea of indoor dining and this idea of I'm furious. My blood is boiling because I want to be with my family. I want us to be able to go and hang out in the green room again and have lunch. We can't do that because so many white people refuse to ever be told. This is the first time they've been told aggressively you can or cannot do something. I don't fully understand. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Like you're fine with that. But all of a sudden, putting on a mask, it's like, it's the Constitution. How dare you, First Amendment? So, I don't really understand when you pay attention to laws, you stop at stop signs, but now all of a sudden, wearing a mask is a bridge too far. But I think that this interesting concept of you can't tell me that I can't be free. And I think that Black people are so used to being told how we can't be free. So, someone just saying, wear a mask, not just for your own safety, but for others, it's like, okay, well, it's just one more thing that you're telling me that I can't do. But hey, it's for the greater good. So, I'm not really going to question it. I'm just going to do it. This idea, it's like, I have to go see the Knicks lose. I know they just won like, Two games, but Knicks fans, slow down. Okay, you guys act like this the whole time. You win two games, and I was like, "We're gonna make it." No, you're not. You're not gonna make it. Okay. So this idea, though, that's like I gotta go see my concerts, I gotta go eat inside, I have to go see my sports. I mean, we saw the Super Bowl and the end of the NFL season. What is going on with this idea that they cannot wrap themselves, their heads around this fact that coronavirus actually is real? People have died. People are dying. What am I missing, Ellie?
0: So I dunk on my sister's driving quite a bit, and one of the reasons why I dunk on it is that she's one of those people that when you have to merge lanes, she waits for a period of time and then decides, well, it's my turn, and then just goes. <laughs> and it's like, there's
1: another She just, like, closes her eyes and just moves over.
0: <laughs> and that's part of what's happening with indoor dining. People are bored. They feel like they've waited enough, and so now it's their turn to have a dinner out. Even some liberal people who, for Valentine's Day, were like, I didn't go home for Christmas. I didn't go home for Thanksgiving. Damn it, I deserve Valentine's Day. It's like, what? No! The virus doesn't care what you deserve. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't have a sense of morality. It's a virus. It just wants to spread and find a home and maybe kill you. That's it. That's the goal. It's hard to maintain that when you see so many other people, Republicans mainly, seeming to go about their lives and go about their business like ain't nothing happened, and they don't die. Because the deaths are unevenly distributed. Even a virus that kills a whole bunch of people is not going to kill 2% of the population. So there's still enough people who don't have a personal death in their family or household, right? And they see these other people, again, mainly white folks and mainly in Florida that seem to be going, and then why can't I go out and have my Valentine's Day dinner or whatever it is?
1: And when you have leaders saying it's just a figment of histrionic Black people's imaginations, why not? Well, Ellie, I could talk to you all day. You are my favorite lawyer. And thank you all listeners for always thinking about what's in it for Black folks. But Ellie, what's next for you?
0: Well, I am right now in final edits for a book that I'm writing, which is not available for pre-order, but I am writing it and it should be out in the fall. Allow me to retort a Black guy's guide to the Constitution. I've done a look at constitutional principles, but centered on what those principles have meant to Black people over the years, as opposed to the way that we usually do it, where we default a white experience when talking about constitutional precepts. So I'm in my last edits for that, and that should be out sometime this fall.
1: Ooh, can't wait to teach that. Congratulations, and I cannot wait to put that on my syllabus. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on What's In It For Us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: For those of you who are listening, take good care. Happy Black History Month, and always, always, always try and remember What's In It For Us. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's in it for Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abu Kadus.